Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! I thought it was critical that there would not be any doubt, none whatsoever, about U.S. support for Ukraine and their war against the brutal attack by Russia. Now, it's good to be back in Kiev. As President Biden makes a surprise visit to Ukraine, On this week's one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion, we look at calls for a diplomatic end to the war with Code Pink's Medea Benjamin and Matt Duss, visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Then the Munich Security Conference this weekend hosts Vice President Kamala Harris. She accuses Russia of committing crimes against humanity. And I say... To all those who have perpetrated these crimes and to their superiors who are complicit in these crimes, you will be held to account. We'll get response from Reed Brody in Geneva, war crimes prosecutor, former counsel for Human Rights Watch, author of To Catch a Dictator. And as the Centers for Disease Control warns teen girls face record levels of depression and hopelessness, we look at the role of social media. As my screen time increased, my mental and physical health suffered. The constant quantification of my worth through likes, comments, and followers heightened my anxiety and deepened my depression. As a young woman, the constant exposure to unrealistic body standards and harmful recommended content led me towards disordered eating and severely damaged my sense of self. We'll look at calls to hold big tech companies accountable for harmful marketing and platform design choices. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden landed in Ukraine earlier today, where he met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and announced a new wave of sanctions against Russia, along with another half billion dollars in U.S. assistance, including more military weapons. I'm here to show our unwavering support for the nation's independence, their sovereignty and, uh, and territorial integrity. Air raids, air raid sirens blared as Biden visited Kyiv. The surprise visit came just days ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, February 24th. Biden's increased weapons commitment comes after the head of the European Commission said the bloc would take extraordinary measures to ramp up the production, purchase and supply of weapons to Ukraine. Ursula von der Leyen made the pledge during this weekend's Munich Security Conference while intense battles continued in eastern Ukraine. 
outside Munich, hundreds of people gathered to protest. Because it is simply important that we cannot permanently supply weapons, because then the war does not stop. Every day that weapons are supplied, people die on both sides. And these people count. It is important to go into peace negotiations. Also at the Munich Security Conference, Vice President Kamala Harris accused Russia of crimes against humanity in Ukraine. Both Harris and Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned China against providing support to Moscow. As reports emerge, Beijing is supplying Russian forces with non-lethal military assistance. Beijing responded to the U.S. threats earlier today. It is the U.S., not China, that is providing a steady stream of weapons on the battlefield. The United States is in no position to make demands of China. We will never accept the U.S. pointing fingers at Sino-Russian relations or even coercing us. Japan has requested an emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council after North Korea test-fired an intercontinental ballistic missile into the sea off Japan's coast Saturday. North Korea fired two more long-range missiles earlier today. North Korea said the launches are a warning to the U.S. and South Korea as they prepare for joint military drills. Top diplomats of Japan, South Korea and the U.S. held emergency meetings on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference and threatened further isolation of Pyongyang. North Korea will face more severe sanctions by the international community. Pyongyang will gain nothing from its provocations. Turkey says it's wrapping up rescue operations in all but two provinces, two weeks after a pair of massive earthquakes and their aftershocks devastated Turkey and neighboring Syria. The death toll now tops 46,000, expected to keep rising as more bodies are discovered. This weekend, the Ghanaian soccer star Christian Atsu was confirmed as one of the victims. The 31-year-old Atsu played for a Turkish club and previously for teams in Saudi Arabia and Britain. Christian Atsu's body was repatriated to Ghana as tributes poured in with his former soccer clubs in the U.K., holding a minute's applause before their weekend games. Meanwhile, a union representing architects and engineers in Turkey has condemned the government and local authorities for ignoring their warnings about issues with building construction and their pleas for stronger regulations. In Israel, thousands of protesters have taken to the streets, blocking roads, massing in front of the Knesset in Jerusalem as the far-right government of Benjamin Netanyahu pushes ahead on highly contested legislation that would greatly disempower Israel's judiciary. On Saturday, an estimated quarter million people took to the streets of Tel Aviv and other cities to protest the plan for the seventh consecutive week. In Syria, at least 15 people were killed and a number of homes were destroyed early Sunday as Israel launched airstrikes on the capital, Damascus. The bombings leveled a 10-story building and left behind a massive crater in a district that's home to senior Syrian government officials. It's believed to be Israel's deadliest attack on Syria since the start of the civil war nearly 12 years ago. Elsewhere, the U.S. military central command, CENTCOM, says it's killed ISIS leader Hamza al-Homsi during an assault in northeastern Syria Thursday. Four U.S. soldiers were reportedly injured in the helicopter raid. The assault came as Syria's government said 53 people were shot and killed by ISIS fighters after an ambush in Homs province last week. In Bulgaria. 
Eighteen Afghan refugees were found dead Friday inside an abandoned truck near the capital. Six Bulgarians have been indicted, including the alleged leader of a smuggling group. Thirty-four others rescued, including five children who remain hospitalized for carbon monoxide poisoning from inhaling exhaust fumes. The refugees were headed to Western Europe. Bulgaria's harsh immigration policies are forcing people to rely on more dangerous methods, and refugees have accused Bulgarian security forces of abuse. The Tunisian president, Kais Saied, has ordered Europe's top trade union official to leave Tunisia after she took part in a protest organized by a powerful labor union Saturday. This is the secretary general of Tunisia's general labor union, Othman Jalouli, speaking at the protest. There's an inability of the government and the authorities to put the country on the right track on the economic, social and political levels. Today, there's a campaign aimed at undermining the union and silencing the voice of workers with the intention of passing unpopular policies. The U.N.'s human rights chief last week warned against a mounting crackdown in Tunisia, where President Syed's government has arrested officials from the main opposition party, Anada, former ministers, judges, lawyers, and the head of a radio station. In July 2021, Syed dismissed the government, declared rule by decree, and vowed to rewrite Tunisia's constitution. In southeastern Brazil, at least three dozen people were killed over the weekend as heavy rains triggered landslides and flash flooding in the coastal Sao Paulo state. Some areas received more than two feet of rain in just 24 hours in what meteorologists called an unprecedented extreme weather event. In New Zealand, at least 11 people are dead and thousands remain unaccounted for one week after Cyclone Gabrielle left a trail of devastation along New Zealand's North Island. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins blamed climate change for the scale of the damage, calling it New Zealand's worst natural disaster of the century. Meanwhile, Madagascar is bracing for Cyclone Freddie, one month after a devastating tropical storm killed 30 people. Freddie's an extremely rare and long-lived cyclone, just the third ever recorded crossing the Indian Ocean. Here in the United States, at least 77 people held at two Immigration and Customs Enforcement detention centers in California have launched a hunger strike demanding the facilities shut down and release all prisoners. The hunger strike is an extension of an ongoing labor protest led by people held at the Mesa Verde Golden State ICE jails, who are paid just $1 a day for their work, including janitorial services where they've been exposed to black mold. Officials at the detention centers, which are operated by the private prison contractor Geo Group, have retaliated against the strikers by putting them in solitary confinement. Meanwhile, a new report by the group Innovation Law Lab describes immigrants and asylum seekers held at the Torrance County Detention Facility in New Mexico are being subjected to torturous methods, including solitary confinement, sleep deprivation, medical neglect and severe due process violations that led to wrongful deportations. In related news, the immigrant justice group, Al Otro Lado, have sued Core Civic for the wrongful death of Anthony Jones, a Bahamian man who died of a heart attack at the Adams County Detention Center in Mississippi in December 2020. The suit says staff failed to send him to the hospital and waited at least nine minutes before administering CPR. In Memphis, five former police officers pleaded not guilty Friday to murdering Tyree Nichols. Their brutal beating of the 29-year-old black father caught on tape led to his death three days later. Tyree Nichols' mother, Rovon Wells, spoke after the arraignment. 
I know my son is gone. I know I'll never see him again. But we have to start this process of justice right now. And I want each and every one of those police officers to be able to look me in the face. They, they haven't done that yet. In northern Mississippi. A man armed with a shotgun and two handguns went on a killing spree Friday, fatally shooting his ex-wife, stepfather, stepsister, and three other people before police finally arrested him. The massacre came in a small town south of Memphis, Tennessee, where on Sunday one person was killed and 10 others wounded by gunfire at a nightclub in a nearby residence. Meanwhile, police in Columbus, Georgia, responded to calls of a shooting at a gas station Friday, where they found nine children injured with gunshot wounds. And in Linden, New Jersey, four family members are dead in an apparent murder-suicide. Investigators believe the father fired on his wife and two teenage children Sunday before turning the gun on himself. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 80 mass shootings in the United States since January 1st. Fox News hosts and top executives, including Fox Corporation head Rupert Murdoch, thought former President Donald Trump's 2020 election fraud claims were completely unfounded, yet continued to push his conspiracy theories on the air. The revelations come in a series of emails, text messages and testimony detailed in a court filing as part of the Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. Fox News repeatedly reported Dominion change votes to hand Biden the win. Star hosts Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram were all named in the filing. Among the charges, the filing says Tucker Carlson wrote fellow primetime host Laura Ingram saying Trump's lawyer, Sidney Powell, is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane, he texts, he wrote. Carlson and Hannity also allegedly wanted to get Fox reporters who fact-checked Trump's election claims fired. Fox News hosts and executives are cited as calling Trump's election fraud lies, quote, mind-blowingly nuts, totally off the rails and completely BS. And Jimmy Carter has entered hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia, turning down any more medical treatment after a recent series of hospitalizations. He was diagnosed with cancer in 2015. The 98-year-old Nobel Peace Laureate is the longest-living president in U.S. history and known for his active post-presidency, including his work with Habitat for Humanity and the Carter Center. He most recently joined efforts to protect the Izembek National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. To see our interviews with President Carter, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the war in Ukraine approaches the one-year mark this week, President Biden made a surprise visit to Ukraine today. During a meeting with the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, in Kyiv, Biden announced a new wave of sanctions against Russia and another half billion dollars in assistance, including more military equipment. I thought it was critical that there would not be any doubt, none whatsoever, about U.S. support for Ukraine in their war against the brutal attack by Russia. Now, this could be back in Kiev. Biden's increased weapons commitment comes after the head of the European Commission said the bloc would take extraordinary measures to ramp up the production, purchase and supply of weapons to Ukraine. Ursula von der Leyen made the 
pledge during this weekend's Munich Security Conference, while intense battles continued along the front in eastern Ukraine. Outside the conference, hundreds of people gathered to protest. Because it is simply important that we cannot permanently supply weapons, because then the war does not stop. Every day that weapons are supplied, people die on both sides. And these people count. It is important to go into peace negotiations. Before President Biden left for Ukraine, he was met with protests during his dinner this weekend in Washington, D.C., by an activist with the anti-war group Code Pink. I hate to bother you. We need to end this war in Ukraine. We need to push the negotiation. I hate to bother you, but people are dying. Sunday in Washington, D.C., there was also a rage against the war machine protest at the Lincoln Memorial, where former Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein and others spoke. For more on Biden's surprise trip to Ukraine today, we're joined in Washington, D.C., by two guests. Medea Benjamin is co-founder of Code Pink, co-author of the new book War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Also with us, Matt Duss, visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders and co-author of a piece uh, in The New Republic headlined A Better Biden Doctrine. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Matt Dust, let's begin with you. Um, your response to this surprise visit before the announced visit to Poland uh, that President Biden made today, meeting with Volodymyr Zelensky in the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. Sure, and thanks for inviting me on. I, I, I think the visit uh, by President Biden to Kiev is, you know, clearly intended just to show um, continuing support and solidarity with uh, the people of Ukraine as we approach the one-year anniversary of the, you know, the the, the Russian invasion or the Russian further invasion uh, on February 24th. And I think, you know, for for an American president to to make a trip like this um, is 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 enormously symbolic. Um, if on all days on President's Day uh, to be to 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 be uh, make an appearance uh, with with Ukraine's president, um, so I think you know coming after you know days after we've seen a number of uh, senior administration officials um, making speeches and holding consultations at the Munich Security Conference, um, working with allies and partners, um, to, you know to to show continuing support. I think the president's visit um, really puts underlines that in an important way. And the announcement of more, something like half a billion dollars of weapons to Ukraine, mainly? Um, I think, you know, the release of, of further funds that have been already um, allocated is important. I think it, you know, but the president also did not commit to, uh, you know, to sending the advanced forms of long-range weapons that the Ukrainians have continued uh, to request. And I think it does show the way the president has approached this this problem um, with a really important measure of restraint. Um, the last point I would make is last week we saw a report in The Washington Post um, about, you know, various administration officials in conversations with their Ukrainian counterparts um, making clear that, you know, this this there should be an opportunity sometime in the next few months, hopefully, for the possibility to to you know to, to find an opportunity to to get to negotiations, um, they are very mindful um, that the United States and its partners cannot continue to supply Ukraine at the current rate. Um, so I, I think that that article we saw last week signaled an effort to start to uh, prepare the environment uh, for eventual negotiations. 
This is President Biden speaking in Kyiv before he left. Together, we've committed nearly 700 tanks and thousands of armored vehicles, 1,000 artillery systems, more than 2 million rounds of artillery ammunition, more than 50 advanced launch rocket systems, anti-ship and air defense systems, all defend you to defend Ukraine. And that doesn't count the other half a billion dollars we're going to be we're announcing with you today and tomorrow. That's going to be coming your way. And that's just the United States in this piece. And just today, that announcement includes artillery ammunition for HIMARS and howitzers, more javelins, anti-armor systems, air surveillance radars to help protect Ukrainian people from aerial bombardments. Later this week, we will announce additional sanctions against elites and companies that are trying to evade sanctions and backfill Russia's war machine. That's President Biden speaking in a surprise trip to Kyiv this morning before heading on to Warsaw, Poland. Um, we're also joined by Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. Uh, Medea, your response to President Biden's trip and to the statement that he just made. Well, I feel this is a propaganda move to shore up support for a senseless war uh, that the American public are starting to realize uh, has no end in sight except for more oh, senseless waste of lives. We saw a new AP poll that showed that only 40 percent of the American people want to send more weapons to Ukraine. We see protests happening here in the United States, like the one that happened yesterday, bringing together a broad sector of people. Uh, and we see the protests happening all over Europe a new coalition called Europe for Peace uh, that is pushing their governments towards negotiations. Uh, and we see just from the United States the opposite from Biden, saying we're sending more weapons. And of course, Zelensky, every time the U.S. agrees to send a new weapon like the tanks, then has another request like the fighter jets. And when it, what is it going to be after that? Troops. Uh, the American public, the public in Europe and the world community is saying we need to find an answer for this. That is why the top diplomat from China is on his way to Russia. They are about to announce a peace plan. The entire world is calling for a peace plan. We saw this with President Lula from Brazil, who met with Biden. Biden was pushing Brazil to send weapons to Ukraine. He said, we don't want to join this war. We want to end this war. Matt Duss, your response to Medea Benjamin's comment that this is a senseless war. I, I agree it's a senseless war. It's a senseless war that was launched by Russian President Vladimir Putin. Um, I would agree that we all want to end this war. I think um, the people who want to end this war most of all are the Ukrainians. I think the, the question is, uh, under what conditions can we end this war in a way that's durable um, and that provides for continuing security and not is simply a pause before we get to another round of even worse fighting. I think this has been the, the approach of the Biden administration thus far, um, is to get to a point where you have real negotiations that can produce um, a ceasefire, uh, if not a peace agreement, um, an actual ceasefire that is enforceable um, and durable. And I, you know, I certainly grant that there are very legitimate concerns and questions on the part of lots of people, um, including within the administration, about how long this can go on. 
um, and 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 continuing to seek opportunities for precisely the negotiations that I previously mentioned. Matt, um, Ukraine's president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, has said he's ruling out trading territory for peace as part of any negotiated settlement mm -hmm. with Putin. Um, he made the comments in an interview with the BBC. Your response? Um, you know, I think from Zelensky's perspective, um, it makes sense for him to say that. Um, and, and I will also recognize that as a matter of international law, um, all of Ukraine, including Crimea, is this is part of Ukraine. Um, now, if we get to a point where, you know, we there's a, a ceasefire that is possible and durable in the absence of those kind of maximalist goals, I think that is something um, that we should look at seriously. I'm not proposing to negotiate on the behalf of uh, the Ukrainians. No one should do that. Um, but I do think we, we do have an interest in, in seeking, uh, you know, an end to this war. And I think the administration is is clear about that, even if they do, they very carefully do not want to get ahead, um, at least publicly, of, of declarations from the Ukrainian president. Um, Medea Benjamin, if you could respond to Matt, what Matt says, and you talked about the anti-war protest yesterday in Washington, D.C. You were initially on the plat uh, scheduled to speak, but then you didn't speak. I was looking at a series of tweets between you and Ralph Nader, and he said, why didn't you speak? Um, can you explain um, what's happening within the anti-war movement? But first respond to Matt. I think the U.S. has a history of trying to stop negotiations, especially the ones that were taking place uh, in March, a month after the war began. And the West decided that they didn't want uh, Zelensky to make an agreement with Russia. Uh, I think that the sending, constant sending of weapons uh, is saying to Zelensky, you don't have to negotiate. Um, we are behind you 100 uh, percent. The U.S., what it should be doing is talking to the Russians. Biden, uh, instead of making a symbolic appearance in Kiev, uh, should make a meeting with Putin uh, and they should talk about how to end this war. Um, the uh, the issue of yesterday's uh, march uh, rally and then a march to the White House, uh, it was fascinating, Amy. I've never been at an anti-war rally like that. My organization, Code Pink, didn't want me to speak there because they didn't like a number of the speakers uh, and their positions on other issues. Uh, but uh, when have we ever had an anti-war march that brought together Ron Paul, Tulsi Gabbard, Jill Stein, Dennis Kucinich, uh, people from very different political perspectives. And there is another march coming up on uh, on March 18th, uh, which a different set of groups is putting together. I think we have to be at every anti-war march. And I'm also excited that on Tuesday we're having a lobby day in Congress invite inviting people of all political persuasions to come meet us in the Rayburn building and go to the offices of every member of the Armed Services Committee in Congress to say enough weapons, stop sending weapons, start negotiating, stop escalating, start negotiating. This is the message I think now that more and more American people want us to take to Congress, which has done nothing but uh, supply billions and billions of weapons to keep this war going when there is no winning on the battlefield. And I think that's an important thing to say uh, to you, Matt Dust, because there is no winning on the battlefield. If you agree to that, then why do we keep fueling this war? Matt, your response. 
Sure. I mean, first, I would just um, quickly, you know, reference something Medea just said about the United States um, um, stopping negotiations. Um, you know, she referenced talks that were happening in March and in April, and I think it's. I would encourage. Um, you know, viewers to look closely into that, because I think that's a very, very incomplete and, and frankly inaccurate, um, you know, rendition of what actually happened in that situation in those negotiations between the Ukrainians and the Russians. Um, you know, with regard to, to ending the war, as I said, um, I want this war to end. Ukrainians certainly want this war to end. Um, I think acknowledging that there can be no victory on the battlefield, um, even if one does acknowledge that, there is still um, an argument for continuing to support the Ukrainians for creating the best possible situation on the battlefield that they can um, to come into negotiations um, from the strongest possible position. Um, that has been, I think, the Biden administration's approach. That has been the approach of our European allies. That does not preclude um, eventual negotiations when those negotiations become possible. I would note also that the Biden administration has been um, talking to the Russians at various levels, even if we're not seeing phone calls between President Biden and President Putin. There's been numerous reports of contacts at various levels between United States officials and their counterparts to identify um, when negotiations are appropriate and can achieve something. Um, but as yet, um, Vladimir Putin is the one who has given no indication that he is ready for that. And I think that's very important to recognize. That's just not true, Matt. And uh, going back to the negotiations that were happening in March, uh, it was not only uh, confirmed by Turkish officials involved in the negotiations and Ukrainians themselves, but now we have former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett from Israel saying that the West blocked these negotiations. Uh, and in, in terms of uh, uh, the negotiations, I think it's very exciting that now we have the Chinese who are on their way to talk to Putin in Russia and will be announcing a peace plan. And I think the Chinese are representing what the entire world wants to see. Stop the fighting now. You say, when will it be time for negotiations? Well, the time for negotiations uh, has, is way past due. And um, uh, I think the pressure uh, to send uh, fighter jets, I mean, we're just getting deeper and deeper into a third world war, into a nuclear war. And I, I think it's the, the American people should be horrified that this is the direction that our government is taking us. And it's the Ukrainian lives that are be being lost and sacrificed every day while the U.S. is trying to weaken Russia. Enough is enough negotiations now. I wanted to get Matt's response to China. Both uh, Vice President Harris and Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned China at the Munich Security Conference this weekend against providing support to Moscow as reports emerge Beijing supplying Russian forces with non-lethal military assistance. Beijing responded to the U.S. threats earlier today. It is the U.S., not China, that is providing a steady stream of weapons on the battlefield. The United States is in no position to make demands of China. We will never accept the U.S. pointing fingers at Sino-Russian relations or even coercing us. That's Wang Wenbin, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson. Matt Das. I mean, well, you can't dismiss what um, what he just said. I mean, certainly the United States has been supplying weapons. Um, and more broadly, I think there are, you know, part of what China is able to exploit in its, its own rhetoric is the fact that the United States has a very bad record on these issues going back many decades. It employs a whole series of double standards um, on issues of international law when it comes to dealing with friends versus dealing with adversaries. Um, and I do think these are arguments that have, you know, uh, you know, have an audience 
um, in the world, particularly in the global south. Now, certainly, I think China you know, has its own problems, both with its, its foreign policy and certainly with its domestic affairs, its repression of the Uyghurs, um, just to name one of the, of the various abuses it's, it's been carrying out. Um, but I think we should not dismiss these, these arguments. Now, as for China's role in brokering peace, personally, I'm very skeptical um, that, 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 that the Chinese government um, will be willing to play an actually productive role here. They do have influence with, with Vladimir Putin, certainly. Um, he's become much, much more reliant on um, support from the Chinese government over the course of, of, of this war. Um, but going back to what uh, Medea mentioned, um, Brazilian President Lula, um, you know, I, I certainly don't dismiss the possibility that Lula could play a productive role in this as, this as well. Um, this is something I think the United States, frankly, should, should be willing to work with. Um, if, if the, you know, the president and his administration have at least rhetorically said that we need to make space um, for others to play a role, particularly leaders from the global south in global affairs. Um, so I, I think we should be willing to, to you know, see if Lula can produce something here and not dismiss that out of hand. Well, we gave you the first word, Matt. So Medea Benjamin, the last word. I think it's very exciting that the Chinese are coming up with a peace plan because we know that Putin would be on board for that. And then we have to get the U.S. and uh, Zelensky on board for that as well. Uh, I think there is this a very loud groundswell coming up from below and from the global south to say enough. We have to find a way to end this. It's causing greater hunger around the entire world. It's causing greater uh, increase in prices of energy. Uh, it's causing more dirty energy to be used. It's time to find a solution. And I think now it's the West uh, against the rest of the world saying end this war now. Medea Benjamin, uh, co-founder of Code Pink, her book War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, and Matt Duss, visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We'll link to your new piece, A Better Biden Doctrine, at democracynow.org. Next up, the Munich Security Conference this weekend. Vice President Kamala Harris accuses Russia of committing crimes against humanity. We'll get response from war crimes prosecutor Reed Brody. Stay with us. Seen Cervenka. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Over the weekend at the Munich Security Conference, Vice President Kamala Harris accused Russia of committing not just war crimes, but crimes against humanity in Ukraine. The United States has formally determined 
that Russia has committed crimes against humanity. And I say to all those who have perpetrated these crimes and to their superiors who are complicit in these crimes, you will be held to account. Secretary of State Tony Blinken followed up on Harris's comments by saying in a statement, we reserve crimes against humanity determinations for the most egregious crimes. These acts are not random or spontaneous. They're part of the Kremlin's widespread and systematic attack against Ukraine's civilian population, Blinken said. We go now to Geneva, Switzerland, where we're joined by the longtime human rights attorney, Reed Brody, who's brought historic legal cases against former Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet, former Chadian dictator Hussein Abre, and others, author of To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Hussein Abre. He's former counsel for Human Rights Watch. Reed, thanks so much for joining us. Can you talk—I I don't know if people— caught the shift right now for exactly what Vice President um, Harris and I expect tomorrow President Biden in Poland um, will be saying? Well, uh, Vice President Harris uh, basically uh, said what we all know to be true, uh, which is that Russian forces uh, are committing crimes against humanity uh, in Ukraine. Um, uh, Secretary Blinken uh, used, and in fact, they both used the legal definition, which is um, crimes committed as part of a widespread or systematic uh, attack on a civilian population. Um, I think we've all we all believe that you know the bombing of, of hospitals and schools, uh, the the torture, the sexual violence, the attacks on civilian infrastructures, the the deportation of children, um, these are all amount to crimes against humanity. Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest, um, what the uh, you know why the why the statement was made, um, what what the what 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 legal significance it has that the U.S. has determined uh, that crimes against humanity have been committed. Um, she also talked about how uh, the authors of these crimes will be held to account. Um, and of course, as, as, as we've discussed before, um, there is a massive justice mobilization uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, was surpassing uh, any precedent by, by orders of magnitude. Uh, you have 66,000 uh, war crimes cases opened by uh, the Ukrainian prosecutor's office. Uh, the International Criminal Court has opened its largest uh, field operation ever. Uh, a dozen other cases have uh, states have jumped in uh, to open up cases on their own soil. Um, many others um, have supplied um, uh, assistance, financial, uh, technical assistance uh, to Ukrainian prosecutors. So there is a huge amount of investigation in real time like we have never seen before. Um, I don't know what new uh, this is going to bring. I mean, perhaps President Biden is going to to explain. Obviously, the U.S., um, uh, you know, has has a very uh, ambiguous relationship in general with international justice. It is not a member of the International Criminal Court. Um, it does support 
actually under the, under the Democratic administrations, including the Biden administration, support the work of the International Criminal Court. Um, but we'll have to really see what, what this declaration means. I mean, it is a very strong statement. And I think in many ways, it is a welcome statement. Crimes against humanity are being committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. Reid, we just had you on two weeks ago um, talking about uh, the issue of war as a crime of aggression and the problem that poses for the United States, because many might say, yes, that's exactly what's going on here. But for the United States to say that is to go against its previous positions. Well, of course, I mean, the, uh, the U.S. position on justice uh, is, uh, you know, on international justice is riddled with double standards. Look, the U.S.'s principal objection to the International Criminal Court um, is, you know, is not that they're investigating Africans and they're investigating these people. The U.S.'s principal objection is that the ICC purports to investigate crimes committed by citizens of non-state parties. So the U.S.'s big objection is that the, the ICC could and, and was until it was deprioritized by the prosecutor uh, investigate alleged U.S. war crimes in Ukraine. U.S. is not a party, but uh, excuse me, uh, Afghanistan. U.S. is not a party, but Afghanistan is. The ICC similarly is investigating alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity by Russian forces, even though Russia, like the United States, is not a party to the ICC, but is allegedly committing war crimes and crimes against humanity on the, the, the territory of the state, Ukraine, which is a party. The same double standard comes in uh, or would come in uh, in terms of uh, aggression prosecutions. Um, now, Vice President uh, Harris did not talk about the crime of aggression. Um, and and one, one interpretation of why she made a, such a strong statement on crimes against humanity this weekend is so that she didn't have to talk about the crime of aggression because the U.S. is tiptoeing around this issue for the reason that you mentioned, Amy. The U.S. I mean, I mean the right only now reason we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, right, in March of 2020, of, in March of 2003. Exactly. Um, the only reason the ICC does not, which is investigating Russia, non-party state, investigating their alleged crimes against humanity and war crimes in Ukraine, but not their aggression, is, and uh, many would say the only reason the ICC hasn't already indicted Vladimir Putin for the crime of aggression, which was the supreme international crime uh, at Nuremberg, um, is that the United States, Britain and France insisted against the majority of the other states, that the ICC should not be able to exercise its, juris its aggression jurisdiction against non-state parties like the United States, France, and Britain, but also like, uh, uh, like Russia. Um, so, I mean, the, again, it's a very welcome statement by, by I believe, by, by, by uh, Vice President Harris. Russia, these are massive crimes. I mean, these are, you know, we are all continued to be shocked and horrified by these crimes. But America has to, the United States has to come to, to grips with the fact that whether it's crimes, whether it's crimes like the Bush administration, 
crimes against detainees in, in Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and secret prisons that were never dealt with, or the illegal invasion of Iraq by the United States in 2003 um, and 2002. Um, you can never, you know, you can't have it both ways. And, and the tools of international justice should not only be aimed at enemies and outcasts. Reed Brody, I want to thank you for being with us. War crimes prosecutor, former counsel for Human Rights Watch, author of To Catch a Dictator, The Pursuit and Trial of Hussein Habre. Next up, as the Centers for Disease Control warns teen girls face record levels of depression and hopelessness, we look at the role of social media. Back in 30 seconds. Reversible Damage by Algiers featuring Zach de la Roca. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. The Centers for Disease Control's warning teen girls across the U.S. are engulfed in a, quote, growing wave of violence and trauma. As new data shows, there's been an increase in rapes and sexual assaults, as well as record levels of depression and hopelessness. The data is from a 2021 CDC survey conducted on 17,000 high school teenagers, where nearly a third of teen girls said they'd seriously considered suicide, up nearly 60 percent from a decade ago. At least 13 percent of them said they'd attempted suicide in the past year, while almost 15 percent of the girls surveyed said they'd been sexually assaulted. We turn now to look at calls from Congress to do more to protect children, especially girls online. We're joined by three guests who testified last week before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Josh Golan is the executive director of Fair Play, which protects children from the harmful manipulations of big tech. Dr. Mitch Prinstein is the chief science officer at the American Psychological Association. He's also a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And Emma Lempke joins us. She is the founder of Log Off Movement, which is to get kids offline. She's a sophomore studying political science at Washington University in St. Louis. She's joining us from her dorm room right now. But first, I want to go to a part of what you told senators last week in Congress. As my screen time increased, my mental and physical health suffered. The constant quantification of my worth through likes, comments, and followers heightened my anxiety and deepened my depression. As a young woman, the constant exposure to unrealistic body standards and harmful recommended content led me towards disordered eating and severely damaged my sense of self. A sophomore in college, Washington University, addressing the Senate, the Senate Judiciary Committee. Emma, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, can you talk about exactly what happened to you, um, the amount of time you spent online, and how it affected you psychologically? Absolutely. And thank you for having me on today. So I got my first social media account in the sixth grade at around the age of 12. And as I began to spend more times on these platforms, my mental and physical health suffered. The 
constant quantification of my worth through likes, comments, and followers heightened my anxiety and really led me towards a worsened mental state. And the constant exposure to harmful recommended content that was feeding me pro-anorexic content led me towards disordered eating. All of these negative consequences I still deal with and grapple with today. So, so talk, all of that— Talk about this issue of disordered eating and how it came from what you were— uh, imbibing from online. Talk about how it works, the whole algorithm, and what you were looking at and the silos that brought you down. Absolutely. So I always use YouTube as an example. So when I was a young girl, um, 12 years old, and I went on YouTube to look up a good workout or a healthy recipe, that one search indicated to the algorithm that it should feed me pro-anorexic content. So within seconds of watching that video, addictive algorithmic design techniques such as autoplay that keeps a video recommended playing and you don't have to click anything and it will send it to you, that led me towards dangerous rabbit holes feeding me pro-anorexic content when all I wanted was a healthy recipe. So how did you deal with this? I mean, you're talking about going on in sixth grade onto social media. How many years did it take you to say, hey, we ought to get off of this? It took me about three to four years. You know, I got Instagram at the age of 12 in the sixth grade, and it took getting into the ninth grade, entering high school to reach a breaking point. And that being said, the negative consequences that I that really appeared through my usage of social media, I still am grappling with today. I'm still repairing my sense of my sense of self, my body image. And those things are incredibly detrimental, specifically when you're dealing with them during your most formative years. So that is kind of one of the reasons why I launched into the log off movement and my own advocacy was to protect all of those 12 year old girls and young women who are yet to interact with these online places and are yet to enter these dangerous rabbit holes. I mean, are you a total Luddite? Uh, are you, you obviously aren't completely off social media because here we are talking mm -hmm. through Skype. <laughs> I'm not. And I think that that's one really integral piece of information that my generation understands. It's that Social media and the online world is multifaceted. We can connect with one another, we can express ourselves, and we can explore these online spaces. But what is important is that they are regulated and that they are safe for young users, that addictive designs like autoplay does not send me, a 12-year-old girl, into a depressive pro-anorexic content hole. Um, so I'm still on these apps, but I have placed levels of friction between me and these addictive technologies. One thing that I do not think should be on the user, a burden that should not be on the parents, but should be on these companies to not addict their young users. So Dr. Mitch Princeton, uh, chief science officer at the American Psychological Association, also professor of psychology at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. You're dealing with young people like Emma every day. Um, what are you recommending and what did you tell uh, the senators last week? Well, first of all, we have to be really careful about the age that kids are first getting on. Remember that the brain is going through one of the most important periods of development right around 10, 11, 12. In fact, the brain's not fully developed until 25. So we've got a biological vulnerability period where kids are going to want things like interaction with peers, likes, reposts. Those are the kinds of things that are triggering a part of the brain that becomes really supercharged at that pubertal transition period. We also have to be really careful about kids' addiction or dependency online. We're finding that one 
of every, uh, excuse me, 50% of teens are having such a hard time getting offline. They can't stop. They are spending a lot of time to make sure they have perpetual access. It's interfering with their daily roles and routines. And suicide, such a painful increase among girls. I mean, it is absolutely astounding, these figures, that nearly a third of teen girls said they'd seriously considered suicide, up nearly 60 percent from a decade ago. At least 13 percent of them said they'd attempted suicide in the past year. Yeah, we've seen incredibly high rates and increasing rates even before the pandemic. This is a decades-long problem with youth mental health. But what we're seeing now, and perhaps linked to social media, is a tremendous amount of discrimination and cyberbullying that's happening, sometimes with kids even telling one another that they should attempt to end their lives as a form of bullying on social media. And just like the pro-anorexia content that Emma was discussing There's a remarkable amount of content that encourages kids to cut themselves or to think about suicide, even sanctions kids when they talk about maybe not cutting themselves anymore with remarkably explicit content, teaching them not only how to do it, but how to conceal that information from their parents. Emma, were you concealing information from your parents? I don't think that it was that I was necessarily concealing the information. I think I felt really hopeless and I didn't know what to do. And I assume that my parents would not know what to do either since they are not digital natives. So I think that's one very unique position that my generation and Gen Z is put into as we get older is we have this understanding of these acute harms that are present within these online spaces. And it is on us to tell our stories, to inform other generations, to protect the next generation. Let's bring Josh Golden into this conversation. Josh Golden is the executive director of Fair Play, joining us from Newton, Massachusetts. Um, Josh, you also testified before the Senate, um, and you were particularly holding big media accountable. What do you demand they do? And do you believe actually in self-regulation? I don't mean kids like Emma. I mean uh, the companies. Can you trust them to regulate? Or what are you demanding that the U.S. government do? Yeah, no, we absolutely cannot trust these platforms to self-regulate. Um, Congress has not passed a law to protect children online since 1998, and that law only protects children uh, up to until their 13th birthday, so teens have no protections on uh, right now. So the situation that Dr. Princeton and Emma were describing um, has occurred in a completely unregulated environment. The platforms, um, you know, when they are caught doing harmful things to young people, first they deny it, then they drag their feet, then they may make some superficial changes. It shouldn't be up to them to decide 100 percent how these environments, which our kids are spending six, eight, ten hours a day in, are designed. We need safeguards. We need new policies. Some of the things that uh, my organization is calling for and uh, legislation which Congress considered last year, like the Kids Online Safety Act and the Children and Teens Online Privacy and Protection Act, some of the things this legislation would do, uh, extend privacy protections to teens so that not as much data can 
can be collected, which fuels all these harmful uh, recommendations. Um, and surveillance advertising to kids and targeted marketing to children and teens. All of this is happening in order to hook kids, in order to sell them to advertisers. So we need to disrupt the business model. And last but not least is we need a duty of care. Um, we need platforms to have a legal obligation to consider how their platforms are designed and how their algorithms are designed uh, and to prevent and mitigate the most serious harms to young people. Right now, their only responsibility is to their shareholders. And as long as their only responsibility is to their shareholders, they're going to keep trying to addict kids any way they can, even if it means serving them uh, pro-anorexic content, pro-self-harm content. I want to go to an Axios event in Philadelphia um, about a half a decade ago. 2018, Facebook's founding president, Sean Parker, saying the site's deliberately designed to hook users. That thought process was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while um, because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you, you know, more likes and comments. I mean, it's a, it's a, val it's a social validation feedback loop that, that it's like a, I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing that a, that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in, in human psychology. It literally changes your relationship with society, with each other, with, you know, it, 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 it probably interferes with productivity in weird ways. It, God only knows what it's doing to, to our children's brains. So that's Sean Parker, founding uh, uh, president of Facebook. Uh, Dr. Mitch Prinstein, um, how do you force this regulation, and who are the forces that are fighting you, for example, in Congress? Well, I mean, I think that there are a variety of ways that this could be regulated from a legal perspective. But if you listen to, to that piece— um, these are brilliant folks who have created a terrific platform for keeping kids engaged. Imagine what you can do with that if it was being used for good, if it was being used to teach kindness or to help kids with their emotion regulation skills or their psychological development. I think that at the very least, we should use this amazing profit that social media companies have amassed to teach kids how to use their platforms in really beneficial ways to get the most psychological uh, good to come out of it, and maybe even to create modules or experiences that we know could train kids and prevent them from mental health difficulties. And Emma, you talk about logging off. You founded the log off movement, but you're not completely logging off. So what do you say to young people? How can you do it in any kind of healthy way? What I say to young people is you need to mentally log off and reflect back on your own usage, asking deeper questions. Why am I on these platforms? Who do I follow? What makes me happy? Where am I harmed? And in answering these questions, young people can begin to curate their experiences online for themselves, prioritizing their safety, their well-being 
over other companies prioritizing the maximization of our attention. It is all about placing levels of friction between us and these addictive technologies. And that has to be facilitated through self-reflection. Emma Lemke, we want to thank you for being with us, founder of Log Off Movement, Josh Golan, executive director of Fair Play, and Dr. Mitch Princeton, uh, chief science officer at the American Psychological Association, professor of psychology at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, you can call 988. That's the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. That's right. Dial 988. Or you can go to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741.